0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network, so join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. I'm Lisa Fine, and I host the podcast with Mary Shirley. Today, we are in part two of a discussion with three of the all-star women from Affiliated Monitor. In the first part of the discussion, we focused on Dion Lomax, Audrey Harris, and Bethany Hingsbach's careers, their areas of expertise, and life as monitors in general. You can definitely listen to that episode or go back to it later, whatever works for you. I'm going to have them tell you briefly a little bit more about themselves, and then we're going to get the opportunity to talk about a couple of different substantive topics that are top of mind for us in the compliance community. So with that, this time, we'll start with Dion. And that just quickly go through and then we'll get to some fun topics.
1: That sounds great. Thank you so much, Lisa. Great to be here yet again with you and my amazing colleagues at AMI. I'm Dion Lomax. I'm the Managing Director of Antitrust and Trade Regulation for AMI, and in this role, I am responsible for providing oversight for client matters involving competition and trade regulation issues in a variety of industries.
2: You've also got here Audrey Harris. I'm the Managing Director for Global Anti-Corruption Compliance, Ethics, and Non-Financial Risk for AMI. Before coming to AMI, I was a partner at Kirkland & Ellis in Washington, D.C., and then the Chief Compliance Officer for Global Resources Company, BHP. And immediately prior to coming to AMI, I was the co-chair of the Mayor Brown's Global Anti-Corruption and FCPA practice. Fantastic to be here today. Thanks so much for having me.
3: I'm Bethany Hangsbach. Really happy to be back here with you, Lisa, and always a terrific time talking with Audrey and Dion as well. I'm a managing director of global corporate compliance at AMI. And before coming to AMI, I was a partner at Shepard Mullen in Los Angeles, where I defended individuals and corporations in government investigations and enforcement actions by the Department of Justice and the SEC and other various agencies. I've been at AMI for almost two years now and have a variety of different monitorships, many of which I lead. And the industries really run the gamut between healthcare antitrust, consumer protection, healthcare fraud. I would say those are the top hot areas right now.
0: And a few of the hot ones that were are Starting with, and um, I just wanted to start with the reporting lines, one of the biggest ones for a lot of us these days, and there are lots of different approaches out there. I want to know your view on whether there's a best practice. Many people say that should be reporting to a CEO, maybe to the board, and it's bad or problematic to report to a chief legal officer. My view for whatever it's worth is that if it's an effective line of reporting, It's important to have a clear line to your audit committee and others and a CEO, but I think sometimes to just have that on paper and not in reality is often a larger concern. And I just wanted to see your take on that from seeing it from so many different places.
3: General Lisa, I agree with that. I think- one thing that I would stress is there is no one size fits all approach. And we are, this is something that, by the way, we are constantly asked. And it's interesting to me how prescriptive entities want us to be in terms of developing their reporting lines. They will literally say, Tell me how we should do this, tell me how we should structure the organization. And I do think the correct answer. Or correct answers, plural, really depend on the size of the entity, the industry, et cetera. But the really important points, I think, are that the chief compliance officer needs to be needs mm-hmm. to have autonomy and needs to have independence. And I know Audrey's gonna talk about having been a CCO herself, she's gonna get into some granularity about how you can tell whether a CCO has those things. But before I turn it over to Audrey, the one thing that I will say too is that we all, I think, would agree that it's preferable to have a direct reporting line to the board. But one comment that I also wanted to make for compliance professionals who are in maybe smaller organizations or maybe organizations that are extremely large, but simply do not have a board of directors. This is something that I was not aware of in terms of the prevalence of this structure, but I am dealing with two entities right now in my work at AMI. And I will just say that both of them are very large entities that as an outsider, we would all say, of course, they're going to have a board of directors, and they don't. That is something, if we're talking about reporting lines, as I just told told one of my one of my colleagues,
2: the place to start is actually establishing an independent board if
3: you don't have one.
2: Yeah, Bethany, that's a really good point. And you're right, I'm never shy with opinions. So I'll give a few of my own on this too. I agree that effective compliance program needs to be tailored how you go to business, right? It needs to be tailored to your business model in order to both protect and grow a company. And as you said, there's really no one size fits all. And I don't think reporting is any different than that. However, there are some specific things that I look for when I'm looking for that empowerment that you're talking about and where that's evidenced when CCOs may have it, at least in their structure, right? Outside of their, just their individual personalities. How's that institutionalized? within that company. One is that regular board reporting. So hopefully you have that board and you have some regular board reporting where you're getting in front of and engaging with your board and your highest decision makers. I think it's really important also second to have one-on-ones with the government a governance elements. So that might be a one-on-one with a board champion. That might be a one-on-one with the chair of the audit committee. I'm also a big proponent of one-on-ones with your external auditors. And that just having them and a lot, Lots of times having these empowerment tools means that you rarely have to pull those triggers and say something that you wouldn't normally say to your senior management. Everything's transparent all the way through up, but you have those, you have that empowerment, and that's really just trickles down into the culture of the company and institutionalizes that empowerment. I think if you can, ability to call a board meeting or an audit committee meeting, so you have those particular mandates, your ability to go ahead and call that meeting if you feel you need to as a CCO is a real indicator of some empowerment there. And it, finally, do they control, even if on day-to-day you're reporting to the general counsel or to the CEO, do you control your own budget? and hire and fire authority. So this isn't necessarily reporting up, but I think it's so important to talk about. So if you're, do you have your own budget? Do you have your own hire and fire authority over your team? This is so critical because there's going to be times you're going to be asking your team members to go in and have difficult conversations. And they have to know that they can have that difficult conversation without thinking that their mortgage or their job or something is on the line. When people say to me sometimes when I'm looking at structures, there's a dotted line reporting here. They report into the business, but there's a dotted line reporting for the divisional folks. And that may work, but I want to ask the question who can hire and fire? Who did your evaluation last year? Who determined your bonus? Asking those questions tells you who their true line of reporting is, and I think that's really important when you're talking about empowerment and resources and a compliance function.
0: That's such a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way in a while, but it really is. If you're in a corporate function or some sort of organizational function like that, to be able to be empowered to do what you need to do and not worry about, which is actually a slight Segue to the next big question in terms of once you have all of these things or trying to get them in place, especially with the monitor, there's a lot of talk in the ethics and compliance community about CCO certification of compliance programs. I wanted to get your opinions. And one thing that we talked about recently is why choose the CEO and the CCO and where. Board and Audit committee's responsibility in this to certify programs.
2: I'll just I'll jump back in because I love this question so much. I think DOJ tells us right that their intent in their speeches when I'm about this is to empower the CCO and to have a seat at the table. Right. I don't know if that'll be the actual effect. It'll be interesting if the certification isn't there. If you get. A monitor, the monitor certifies. So you don't have to certify about your program, the CEO and the CCO. If you get a monitor, the monitor certifies that. So it'll be interesting to see how those incentives and how they play out in the coming resolutions. I'll say that when I submit a report on something to authorities, I'm already certifying to those contents and that's the way I treat it. So to some degree, some will argue that there's not a big difference there. When you're presenting your program as a CCO, you're actually certifying as the contents of that program and that's just part of being the CCO. I think the requirement could be and is, when I talk to people, an initial talking point for a CCO at management or board briefings right now to help them obtain additional resources or perhaps require roll-up certifications. I think we might also see in this space it being used as a very nice lever to say, hey, you know what, we should bring in an independent third party to come in and certify our program or to look at our program at that time of resolution or right before resolution so that the CCO and the CEO have something outside of their own program to really be an additional support for their certification. The other side is that I think it could also create even more pressure because what you're seeing there is you have the CEO certifying. We know how that's going to work, right? The CCO and CEO, excuse me, is going to rely on the CCO certification. Really there, I think DOJ is being clear, and I think the SEC has been clear on this too, that they expect CCOs to be willing to walk if they don't feel comfortable. And I don't think that's necessarily fair, but I think that's again, the reality and why a person in that chair is so important to a program in ways that even other roles might not be in that space. But those are my initial feelings on the certification. Thanks.
0: And it's interesting because when I got into this field, one of the first bits of advice I got from one of my mentors is you always have to be ready to walk or make sure you're prepared. Hopefully you'll never have to do that, but- you always have to be prepared that because I and I think our word really is our credibility. Now, with that, I think we're gonna to go to I can't believe how the timing of this worked itself out. Um, to speak with you all. We were joking about this as, as if you've been listening to us speak. I've been so excited. We've been planning this for a while. And then we had this date, and then suddenly on September 20, September 15th, I feel like it was almost planned for our podcast. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco made some detailed remarks on corporate criminal enforcement at NYU. All of us in the compliance community, I think, are looking at this, trying to read the tea leaves in some great detail. So now I get to pick all of your brains on it a little bit. So this is great. So let's just start with each of you mentioning some of your key takeaways from those remarks.
1: Sure, I'll kick us off. And so I think I was really struck by, in her remarks, about greater emphasis being placed on rewarding corporations for instituting their own policies for independently investigating and emphasis for me on independently investigating, reporting and and penalizing internal wrongdoing. For me, this underscores what we often view as the benefits of conducting what we call an independent assessment. Basically, from my perspective, incorporating an independent assessment into the audit function of, again, With the hat that I wear, antitrust or any compliance program, but I'll just speak from the antitrust lens for a second. When you can incorporate that independent assessment into that audit function of an antitrust compliance program, I think it can yield certain benefits. First and foremost, it an unbiased independent assessment of say, an antitrust compliance culture, for example, can often yield more accurate and candid information. It can help reinforce the compliance messaging in the company that, hey, we think compliance, antitrust compliance is important. And I think it sends a message to the company that, oh, if there's an independent assessment happening, The entire workforce realizes that management is saying, hey, we have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to this particular compliance issue, whether it's antitrust or something else. And it communicates the message that, hey, the company values input from the workforce in order to ensure the effectiveness of the program. I think an independent assessment helps to identify the strengths of the program that can be maintained. weaknesses in the, that may exist in the program and really can help the company target where improvements might need to be made. And it actually should help to prevent violations or at least help to identify them early enough that maybe there's an opportunity to self-report. And then beyond that, it I think it, it can help, an independent assessment can certainly help demonstrate to the government that if there was a violation, hey, it's a one-off occurrence. It's not indicative of a larger compliance issue. And so that's kind of what I took from the words independently investigating how important it is for companies to be way more proactive in terms of their ongoing assessments of the effectiveness of their program. So...
3: I think that's right, Dionne, and I think those are all really good points. The one thing I would say if I had to pick just one that jumped out at me was the focus on compliance programs that incentivize compliance through, through compensation initiatives. I think I counted... Seven times the word clawback was used in the memo, which I think I can probably speak for all of us on this call that that is many more times than any of us have seen a clawback actually used in practice. And I think that is probably part of the point. I think the memo is just hammering the idea. We've given you these guidelines, how your program is supposed to be structured, how we're going to evaluate it. But that evaluation is not just going to be on paper, it's going to be in practice. And I think the focus of the memo is really, to me, the part of it that jumps out is the idea that we're going to look at how you incentivize compliance and how you penalize noncompliance through actual financial initiatives. And I think it's such an interesting point because the memo seems to be very short on ideas for incentivizing compliance. And I think that's something that all of us can put a lot of thought into. It does, I think, require some creativity. Penalizing compliant or non-compliance rather is in some ways harder to execute, but not as difficult to imagine. We've been experimenting with different initiatives such as bonuses for, for compliant behaviors. But I think It's really going to require some creativity on all of our parts in figuring out how to do that in practice. But that's the one thing that I would say jumped out at me was, was that
2: emphasis. Yeah, I think you're right, Bethany. DOJ's message is people behave the way they're incentivized to behave, right? And that was, for me there were, and you're going to laugh at this because everyone on this podcast knows I love my three to five, right? It's always three to five things that are three to five bullet points. I think I really have three that I'm going to give on the Monaco memo from kind of the former CCO and compliance perspective. And the first one is that the CCO should put human resources on speed dial, not only because as Bethany said, Clawback is mentioned a record number of times in the memo. And I think there will be some struggles there, especially large global corporations and compliance programs when they're looking at, can we even put clawbacks in our contracts and what about our employment law in these countries and our labor agreements and things. But they are at least saying, hey, talk to HR, look at your controls around employment agreements, compensation plans, your business KPIs, right in that space. But it's not the only thing that's around HR that they're looking at. And so I'd encourage CCOs to also look around the memo's guidance around non-disclosure and non-disparagement provisions and compensation and severance agreements. Okay, talk with HR about when you're taking people in and their employment agreements, but also start make sure you're talking to HR about what those severance agreements look like on the way out. Lots of SEC listed companies are gonna say, yeah, we already got the carve out for the whistleblower requirements. But I think if you really look at this, the wording is broader and it will take some time to work with your external counsel and your labor lawyers as well as your HR function to really make sure you get the right balance between appropriately protecting business proprietary information, but also meeting those expectations of DOJ. The second one, I would say a takeaway, reinforcing the message, no paper programs. So this is a theme they've been talking about for a long time, but I'm going to tell you the, where I saw that the most was talking about Private devices and third-party apps. Really, the message was: Hey, you can have a policy that says the business should you should not do business on your private device or on a third-party app. But if you're not training your folks on that, and if you're not testing or enforcing against that, you don't get to use it as a shield when you say we can't use those communications. So I thought that was a really important one. And finally, um, my third would my third note here takeaway would be. Hey, CCOs, look for the compliance carrots because they've buried some in there. There are a few compliance carrots that are buried in this memo. First, I think in a particular interest is factor three in considering whether or not you get a monitor. It says whether at the time of resolution, so not at the time of conduct, but at resolution, the corporation has adequately tested its compliance program and internal controls. So really, and it's you know, even through an external independent testing of the program, to illustrate the effectiveness, that might be a reason why you don't get them on. And as far as, I think Bethany mentioned, uh, resolution solutions and where you can use different tools that that AMI uses here it includes those independent assessments. And I think we could see companies starting to do independent assessments, even right before resolute, to be their basis for saying either, hey, Here's our program, and it meets the standards, or even if it doesn't, even if they find that assessment finds some places for improvement, we've already got a plan. So we can go with, hey, DOJ, you can go with self reporting here because we already have a plan and a testing, but it really doesn't need a monitor in this space. So that's one carrot. The second carrot for this third item is that the memo notes that prosecutors may. Early terminate, <laughs> so of early termination of monitor if the company demonstrates significant or faster than anticipated improvements. So we at AMI have seen this early termination work in agency monitorships and court appointed monitorship scenario. I haven't seen it at the DOJ level. So DOJ may really need to seize this opportunity to show that this is a real carrot and not just a fake carrot out there and that they can really practice in this area and not just be a one-way ratchet of extending monitorships But there is hope to shorten those monitorships if you're expediting your program. So those are my three big things that I looked at from a compliance perspective. That's great. Now, we talked a
0: lot before and you too about your role as a monitor. Reading that from a perspective, not just an in-house perspective, but as a monitor, did it change your way on how you may view some of the work you're doing or your roles?
2: I don't know if it changed my perspective on roles as monitors, but I will say that it did tell me that DOJ is looking at monitors a little differently. At least they're really focusing on transparency being key here to DOJ's credibility in requiring monitorship. And I think they're also tipping their hat to some monitorship challenges in the past. So you can see there, there's some acknowledgement of past criticisms of monitorships regarding the selection process. And we'll just, I'll put it out there, there's been criticisms on selecting former DOJ officials for monitorships. So you can really see how they get into that committee process, having a transparent process, having an ethics person on that committee to make sure there aren't conflicts. The memo also calls out the prosecutors to explain their why, which is something you mentioned before, but why a why we put a monitor or required a monitor in this particular scenario and publish that. And then I think they also really focused on some of the things that have been a rub for external counsel and for companies over the years with monitors. And that's budgets, written scopes of authority, and really what they call clear and tailored monitorship work plans. And I think from my perspective and from AMI's, we welcome that because if you put those things at the beginning, talking about budgets, written scopes of authorities, really clear tailored work plans, it's not just makes monitorship set up for success, but it's simply good practice in this space. So if anything, what it does is bring transparency to that and brings those things to the front of the discussion and engaging at the beginning and really sets monitorships up for less friction as they're executed. But yeah, I know, I know Deanna has some other experience in this area too, love to hear what you have to say.
1: Sure, absolutely. And for me, I think the thing that was notable was that Lisa Monaco noted that DOJ prosecutors will receive regular updates to verify that the monitor stays on task and on budget. Audrey just mentioned budgets. Basically, noting that, hey, we're not regulators, we don't DLJ, we're not a regulator, but where we do impose a monitor, we're going to stay involved and monitor the monitor, (laughs) basically. And I think just to piggyback on what Audrey said, from my perspective, these remarks largely underscore and reinforce the way. I think we view our role as compliance monitors. From our perspective, the parties are all invested in the conditions that they, let's assume it's a negotiated consent decree or settlement agreement. So from that perspective, the parties are all invested in the conditions that they've agreed to in the settlement. They all want to ensure that the settlement conditions are being implemented effectively and fairly and successfully. And so we believe that the monitor's oversight role is to help facilitate that success through our independent review, but also making sure that we're carefully balancing the respective interests of each stakeholder in that settlement. And so in many respects, what Lisa Monaco is proposing really dovetails well with how we already approach our monitorships, especially as it relates, as Audrey said, to the preparation of comprehensive work plans and adherence to budgets throughout the monitor.
3: I think that that's right, Dion. And the one thing I'll just add generally, I agree with everything that both of you said. I think the comments on the role of monitors in the memo really reflect my own personal evolution in terms of how I have viewed monitorships. So as I said, I believe on our earlier podcast, my first involvement with monitors was when I was representing an entity that was under a monitorship. And we had constant friction with scope creep and budgets that were runaway trains. And so I I understand the need for these more prescriptive ideas about what a monitorship is going to look like and how DOJ specifically is going to monitor the monitor. But I also think it's extremely interesting that the way that this is trending is the way that AMI has always done its business. And in fact, why I joined AMI, because we really view our role as one of collaboration. We understand how important it is to keep in regular, consistent communication with not just the monitored entity, but with the regulator or the department as well. And things like efficiency and cost consciousness have always been top of mind for us. And so I think rather than having the memo change the way that we view our roles, I think it really has just underscored the way that we see ourselves as monitors.
0: Thanks, that's really interesting. One of the things, you alluded to it earlier, Bethany, and we all talked a little bit about it, is how to reflect corporate values in compensation systems. We talked a lot about the number of times of the use of the word clawback One of the things that is a challenge to me is I I wonder how you're supposed to incentivize doing the right thing as opposed to penalize people who don't because I come from that belief that you're supposed to be an ethical. You're not supposed to be bringing your company to the point where we have to talk about the DOJ and monitorship. How do you reflect that in a compensation system and what do you think are some good practices to do?
1: So let me very briefly just say, I think Bethany already really touched on this quite a bit when she talked about incentives, but really looking at how your compensation program is set up, sometimes before you institute your compliance program, but because I'm assuming they're all good companies out there already have a compliance program, you still need to, on an ongoing basis, look to determine does your program, your program, does it unintentionally incentive behavior that's non-compliant? So for example, if you look closely at your sales or pricing bonuses and how they are structured and implemented, are, is it set up in a way that's so unrealistic that encourages representatives to skirt rules? Um, has the company considered the implications of its incentives and its rewards on compliance? Do they make tweaks and course corrections if they realize that there are instances where people were wrongly incentivized to do the wrong thing? Have there been specific examples of, uh, examples of actions taken, example promotions or rewards, that were denied because people failed in terms of their compliance or their ethics obligations. And the, other, the last thing I think I'll say to that is who participates in making the disciplinary decisions and what do those entail? And and what's the consistency? Is the same process followed for each instance of misconduct that's found? Are there similar instances of misconduct that were treated disparately? If so, why? So I think all of that really feeds into the in, the incentives or the disincentives to be compliant or non-compliant.
3: I agree with that, Dion. And one thing I think that just needs to be mentioned when we're talking about this is the importance of data, right? And so when we're talking about the use of compliance metrics and benchmarks in compensation calculation, this is going to start to get really granular. And we're going to now need to be able to demonstrate that the incentives were fairly applied and applied in a consistent way across the organization. And I have a current engagement where a client has, I'll just be very broad and general here, but I think it's a terrific example, has a an incentive-based system. But when we came in and did our assessment, one of the things that we noticed is that it was so generically described and not and so loosely defined that employees were constantly challenging the way that incentives were calculated because there just wasn't enough data, there wasn't enough clear information on what would be considered an activity that would be warrant that would warrant an incentive, and so I think this is a really interesting point of the memo that we could talk about for a long time. But one of the things that I think. is a big takeaway for me is that anytime you start talking about compensation, you're really going to need to back up your decision-making. And the data is going to be extremely important when we talk about these incentives.
2: Absolutely. And I remember spending, and I have with clients as well, lots of time talking about trying to craft KPIs that are consistent, are fair, are not just negative KPIs, but are positive KPIs, which can be a lot more challenging, especially when you get outside of um, 100% training for your division, or did you participate in co-training with compliance? You can do, once you get beyond those, it gets a little bit more challenging. But I'll say one thing has always been the ultimate test for me. And this is a scenario test that someone gave me once. And so say, for example, you have a division president in X country put in the country. And that president gets a request for a small bribe, really small, for a state-owned entity contract. They've been working on the contract for a year, and that contract will mean the entire division. So the entire 3,000 people that person is responsible for will meet their numbers that year, and that entire team will get their bonuses. No contract means they miss the numbers, and no bonuses to any of them, and probably a few layoffs. So if you have that scenario, would the company change their goals and would they change compensation to reward doing the right thing of not paying the bribe and losing the contract? How would the company support that division and that division president? And has the division president received that proactive message? That so, when he's making that making trying to make that ethical decision that we talked about before, that he's trying to make that calculus between a small bribe and his employees' mortgages, he knows that the company is going to make them maybe not whole, but make them right in that scenario. The answer to that scenario question will really tell you whether or not the company incentivizes positively compliance or not.
0: That's actually just a fabulous question and way to be thinking about it. And especially when you for for management training and executive training, I think it is a kind of a moment that can really be something to spotlight. And with that, I've just so appreciated the time that you've all taken with me on this series. I really am just so grateful to getting a chance to get to know you better during all this. So I just want to say Thank you so much. And on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast, now thanks so much for being a part of Great Women in Compliance as you all truly are and have a wonderful rest of the day.
1: Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you, It's an
0: honor. You too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.